24 about decisions. Now, who among you hates making decisions? Raise your hand. It's okay. Raise your hand. If you hate making decisions, Rachel, raise your hand. I know you hate it. <laughs> All right. What about the people that love making decisions? Anybody here like love being the decision maker? I know there's there's a few of those people too. God has a place for you. I don't. I and for me because apparently I like to make decisions. I think it's a relative thing. You either like it more than your spouse or less than your spouse. So it kind of runs that way, right? But this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about decisions. So I want to talk about the last conscious decision you made and the, and the future decisions that you're going to make. So, so think in your head. Try and, try and get a picture of the last conscious decision that you made. might have been a big thing like a big car purchase or a house purchase or maybe you just got engaged and you're making decisions like that or whatever that big decision or maybe it's a small thing like who you were going to have over for dinner on what night you were going to have them over and what you were going to have for that dinner or whatever it was or maybe it was what kind of molasses to buy did you know i was in the store last week and there are three different kinds of molasses in the world like what is that i'm a simple man but i don't need three kinds of molasses and i thought oh these are just this is just competition. They're all made by the same person. Like it was the same company made. I was like, molasses? That's a hard thing. I got stuck in the store for like 10 minutes trying to decide on molasses. But love them or hate them, we all have to make decisions pretty much all the time. Now, when I was a kid, I had this buddy. His name's Aaron. He'd come over to my place. We lived up in the mountains out on property or whatever. And we always had a lot of fun. But even though we had like the world at our fingertips, somehow we got confused about what we should do with our time. So we'd get bored and be like, there's nothing to do. You know, this just happens to kids. And so we had this this fail-safe. Like, if things got really bad and we got, like, really stuck and couldn't think of anything awesome to do or decide on a good thing, we'd go down to my garage where the dog's brush was kept. Now, the dog had this wire metal brush thing for brushing out his nasty dander. And we would say, if I brush my hair with this brush, I will have a great idea. So we would brush our hair with this dog brush. And then I would say, it's your turn now. These things take sacrifice, you guys. Superstition takes sacrifice. So he would brush his hair. I would brush my hair. And lo and behold, almost without fail, it would just trigger in our brains. We'd get this great idea. Now, we, we would decide on some awesome, amazing things. So typically, this was dangerous right afterwards, right? Like, Watch out for what's about to happen. So I remember one occasion we did this. We brushed our hair, and we went, oh, I know. we got to get the 22 out. So we got the 22 out, and we started walking around in the woods, and then we found this giant hornet's nest, like bald-faced hornets. You know those ones? The big, like, look, look like bumblebees, but they're mean. Like, they're real mean. And so we found this big nest. It was on the ground up by the fort that we had, and I'm like, well, we need to shoot the hornet's nest with the 22. Obviously, that's the clear decision you make. So we were shooting the hornet's nest with this 22, and the hornets were starting to buzz and fly around and notice that they were being shot at, and they were getting angry and angry. And then my buddy Aaron had this really good idea. He was like, I need to pee on that hornet's nest. Now, I'm a smarter guy than he is, so I said, nope, we don't need to do that. That's a non-decision I'm willing to make. So he proceeded to do this. It was out in the woods. Nobody else it was it was. Kind of say, and I, I was making a good decision by refraining from this and encouraging him not to do what he was about to do. And you know what happened? While he is peeing on the hornet's nest, a hornet flew up and stung me on the forehead. And he was fine. Like, 
what is that? That is that's the, that's the fate that you leave to superstition, I guess. Anyways, more often than not, we have bad ideas, and we need to be making better decisions all of the time. Like one time, Aaron and I went out to the spirit pile behind his house, and we were like, we had these alter egos. I was Ugg, he was Bug, and we would sit at the back of the dirt pile. He lived on a hill with a street running below it, and we lobbed dirt walls like over the hill down into the street, and they would explode onto the ground like grenades. It was amazing. It was really fun. And the cars made it more amazing because they were dodging these like dirt clouds until one of those cars was his dad who was driving home from his job working for the city as the guy that keeps the streets clean and in good order, he was not impressed with us. Needless to say, we all have decisions to make. <laughs> and we've all made some bad decisions. I don't think Aaron and I are alone in that. We all make bad decisions sometimes. And we've all had to suffer the consequences of those bad decisions. Maybe it was a car that we bought that turned out to be a lemon. Or maybe it was a bad boyfriend, or maybe we all decided to invest in Napster or AOL or BlackBerry or something like that, which all of these things might seem promising at first, but then they end up belly flopping on you, right? Or also, if you ever have a katana, you're about to make a bad decision. If you have a katana in your hand and you are not a samurai, you're about to make a bad decision. So don't do that. And I should say also that Aaron's grandpa had a katana left over from World War II, so that was a product of more bad decisions. The point is, we all want to make good decisions. Or if you're like me as a child, you would settle for just like better decisions, right? It doesn't have to be good necessarily, just maybe better than where we were heading. And I have like a long list of stories. That, that was the easy part to write for this sermon. Okay, so, but here's what we do. We turn, as a kid, I turned to this dog brush to make decisions, to help me make decisions for us. But now as adults, where do we turn to make better decisions? Who, who do we turn to to help us make better choices. Maybe it's Oprah or Dr. Phil, <laughs> or maybe it's like just the lunch table at work, right? We'll just float it through some of these guys and see what they think. Or maybe we have a rich buddy that we want to be like, and we go, oh, maybe if I ask him his advice, then I'll get good advice from that person. So we just, we just kind of farm out our decision-making through these different decision-making things, or we just Google it, right? Like that's how I settle most decisions in, in life, it seems. But we all desire to make better decisions, which is a good desire. And it's one that God wants us to do as well. It's a desire that God has put in us to make better decisions also. And the story that we're going to turn to today is about how to make not just good decisions, but even godly decisions. Because as we'll see, and as you probably already know, I'm sure, it's hard to make a godly decision without God. Right? So today we're going to look at how to invite God into our decision making which is what I'd like us to think about as we hear the story of Genesis 24. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 24. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the back. No shame in getting up and getting one. It's all right. Turn to Genesis chapter 24. It's at the very beginning of the Bible. It's page 16 on these ones. It's the story of Abraham getting a bride for his son Isaac. So as we turn there, I'll just remind you that Abraham is now very old. Okay, And he has just, in the last sermon that we have from here, he has just had to bury his wife. And so now he's thinking about the, his son and the generations that are to come. Okay, So this is, this is kind of the context of this. So Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. It says, Abraham was now very old. I already told you that. I think you already know. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, 
the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. That's weird. Right? That's a little bit of a weird thing. This is a cultural thing. They, they do this. But the thigh oath is like a way of saying this means business. Because you don't have somebody like put your hand under my thigh and then make them swear something to you. And then they think, oh, he was probably joking around about that. Right? Like this is a very, a very serious kind of intimate thing. I had this professor at Bible college who worked as a missionary down in the Middle East. And he was teaching my cross-cultural communications course. And he was talking about the thigh oath, which they still make use of. And he said, if you want somebody to, like, give you your word, it's like a sort of pinky promise, but on steroids, right? And he walked up to me in the class. I could probably have got a giant lawsuit for this. But he, like, stuck his hand right on my thigh. And he, like, demonstrated, like, and I'm like, I know that you're serious. I know that you mean business. And that's basically what this is. It's very important to Abraham because this is sort of, it has to do with everything that comes from his loins. So this is why they get close to that. And it has to do with the generations that come after, which is everything to these families. And so the Sioth is a big deal. So this is, this is where we get to, right? Put your hand on my thigh. So this is a very important thing to Abraham. But why? Why is it very important? And so we read on in Genesis 24, uh, verse three to six he says i want you to swear by the lord the god of heaven and the god of earth that you will not that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the canaanites among whom i am living but that you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son isaac this is one of god's values that that god's people being established now through abraham and isaac um, would be set apart from the other tribes of the earth. God was setting apart a holy people for himself. And so Abraham was obeying God's desire for that by not marrying any of the Canaanites that were around him. Even though this land was promised, the people of the land were not the promised. And so he's sending his son back to his homeland to these things. And he's saying, do not get a wife from among the Canaanites, but do go to my country, my own relatives, and get a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant asked him, what if the woman, the, the wife-to-be, to come back, sorry, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country that you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there. Why? Why is this so important to Abraham? Because the land is the promise. So he's saying, what if the woman doesn't want to come back? So like in my case, I married Rachel, and I had to go to Canada, right? Because... That was the choice that I had. So I go to Canada, and he's saying, so what if the woman doesn't want to come back to Isaac? Can I send Isaac to the woman? He's, no. No, do not do that. Make sure that you do not take my son back there. Why? And then Abraham elaborates. He says, says in 6, 7, he says, Abraham said, the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me an oath, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. This is the reason why Abraham says he must, he must not go back there. Because he would be leaving the promised land. He'd be leaving the place that God desired him to be. And so he says, make sure that that woman comes back to this promised land. So we need a promised person in the promised land. Everything that Abraham is doing is oriented around God's promise to him. He is acting in faithful obedience to what God has promised. And it's all hinged and rooted inside that. So make sure that this happens because the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land and who spoke to me and promised me, no, saying to your offspring, 
I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman's unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. Again, very important to this thing. And so the servant swallowed awkwardly, put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham, and he swore an oath to him concerning this matter. I put that swallowed awkwardly. That's in brackets there because that's not in the Bible. Okay, so this is what he does. So he says, okay, the expectations are very clear. This is what I'm to do. This is what I'm not to do. And it's all of it hinging around the promise of God. And so now the servant has this enormous, enormous decision to make. Can you imagine the pressure of this? This is Abraham, like the first of all of the, the fathers and the many tribes. The father Abraham, he's the big deal. And, and he is saying to his servant, I need you to go find a wife for my son, upon whom the whole promise of God is going to rest. Upon God's plan is going to rest on this union and, and the ability. Like, that's a lot of pressure. So he's got this big decision that he has to make. And so this is what we want to look about today, is how does that servant invite God into that decision process? How does he go about inviting him into that difficult decision? And so in Genesis 24.10, it says, Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim, and he made his way to the town of Nahor. So this is the first thing that he does. He invites God into this decision by utilizing the resources that God has given him. Does that make sense? He uses the gifts that God has given him. He gets up and he does something. He, he responds to this call. He responds to this thing that he wants to invite God into by getting into it himself. So godly decision-making will involve us. If we want to make godly decisions, we can't just sit by in some vacuum and say, okay, I want to do this thing. I want it to be right. So, God, I'm just going to leave it to you. I'm just going to sit here. Because he could have done that. He could have said, okay, well, clearly Abraham is like a, a man of great faith that God speaks with and talks to. And, and he wants this thing to happen. God wants this thing to happen. Clearly God wants Isaac to be married off. So I'm just going to sit here and allow God to bring the right person out. But he doesn't do that. He gets up and he gets involved in this thing. And he says, okay, not only am I going to bring about all of this stuff, I'm going to get my, my the camels are all loaded. He's going to bring the bride price with him. He's going to bring all the valuables that it's going to take in order to make this thing work. He's, he's working within the system, within the culture and the expectations that he is in. And so he's responding with what he's able to do so that God will also respond. And that's the way that he does that. This even includes, interesting, I think, a little bit of strategy. In verse 11, it says that when he got there, he had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he knows that, right? So he's going, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have this plan. I'm going to work within the system and the culture and the expectations around me. I'm going to move in that direction. And, and by participating in this, I will also now invite God into this as well. He's doing what's in his power to do, but his earnest efforts and the utilization of God's gift to him is balanced by the next verse. Because you're already thinking, and I know you're ahead of me a little bit. You're going, wait a minute, Kyle. You can't expect that this guy is going to do whatever he wants to do and then call it the will of God. Like, how does God get into this thing? So we have to read the next verse, Genesis 24:12. Then he prayed, 
after he had done all these preparations, then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. He has done what he can do, and now he's asking God to do what only God can do. And that's the second way that we invite God into our decisions, is we acknowledge our dependence on him for the success of our decisions. We acknowledge that without him, we cannot make godly decisions. So this one is the most obvious of the points. It's we invite God into our decisions by inviting God into our decisions. But it, as obvious as it is, we often skip over that, that little thing, don't we? We just go, well, I'm a Christian person. I'm in, I have all of these values around me. I live my life in a certain way. So I'm just going to expect that God is going to be a part of this. And we never stop and say, Lord, would you make this thing successful? I want to give this thing to you and, and, and lay those decisions before him. And so that's the second thing he does is he acknowledges his dependence on him. This, to me, is a lot like the growth goals of our church. We have, we have a vision as a church of, of growing into a congregation of 350 people, uh, of seeing 50 people baptized in the next now only four years or four and a half years. Um, and, and we expect all of these things. We set these as targets because, because we believe that God desires us to grow. We believe that these are things that God values and wants us to strive after. And so we, we set these as targets so we might see what it would look like for God to do this thing among us. So that we can go, okay, if God does desire growth and we ourselves want to be growing people and God is at work among us, what would it look like? It would look like things starting to expand. And so we have preparations to do for this, right? So we, this is the reason that we're considering buying new chairs. It's the reason that we have to, we have to make considerations for uh, how big of a space that we have. We go, well, if we want to be 350 people, if we really want to be growing, then this this space that we have is not going to be big enough for forever, right? If, if, if God does his part, then we have to do our part as well. We have to put our hands and our feet to work to help uh, in or become involved inside of this process, right? So how do we prepare for it? So there's all these things that we can do, all of these sort of logistics that we can arrange, but we're fools to think that that is what causes growth. We all know we could buy lots of fancy new chairs. We could buy a fancy new establishment. We could have all the fanciest, coolest stuff, and it wouldn't cause growth. And even if we got numerical growth, it's not the growth that God desires. What God desires is for us to be growing deeper in a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And we believe that's true of everybody. And so that's the kind of growth that we want to do. So we're going to facilitate. We'll do our part so that God can do his. We must be faithful to ours and then ask God to be faithful to his. Inviting God into our plans, asking him to bring the success, means that when God does bring success, he gets the glory. It's not us. We don't say, oh, this happened because I did this or I did that or, or this happens because of, because of this great strategy or because of this pastor or because of this program or whatever it is. This happens because God brings the success. When we say, Lord, bring the success. We're going to do this stuff. We're laying it before you, but you must bring the success. And so Abraham's servant lays before the Lord his plan. We see it in Genesis 24, verses 13 and 14. It says, See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, Please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, Drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now this might be a little bit random seeming to most of us, right? 
but it's not actually a random scenario that he's kind of proposing to God. Nor is it entirely the kind of thing that a person would expect to happen in that culture. Okay, so I'll, I'll explain. Um, being personally offered a drink, like for a stranger at a well, for, for a woman to say, can I get you a drink of water? That would be kind of normal and expected inside of the hospitality kind of laws and culture and, and whatever, the, the normal sort of cultural expectations. Uh, but having her say, let me also draw water for you 10 camels is like crazy above and beyond. It's like a, it, it would be a very strange thing. And it's something that he is saying, let her offer to do this. I'm not going to prompt it. I'm not going to like lead this thing or manipulate this thing or try and like, you know, control this situation, but so that I know that this is something from you, Lord, let her be the one that offers this thing. And I'll just I'll sit here and listen. Now, I learned this week. I'm always learning stuff. We got kids in homeschool and I got Bible commentary. So I learned a thirsty camel, apparently, can drink up to. Any guesses? Anybody else in homeschool like learning all these random things? How much? 10 liters? It's 25 gallons, apparently. And I also learned that they don't, they don't, that's a lot. Is that not a lot of water? She's got a jug on her shoulder. Like, that's not very much. I mean, that's, that's a good guess. That's what I would have guessed. I mean, two gallons of water is a ton. 25 gallons if they're thirsty. And he's got 10, 10 camels, right? So for a person to be like, Let, yeah, have a drink. Let me also water your camels for the next seven hours, right? Like, this is like one jar at a time dumping into the trough while these camels fill up their humps. Not true. Camels don't store water in their humps. I, I learned that too. This stuff. This stuff, eh? What this is doing is it's reflecting the kind of hospitality to strangers, to the sojourners, to the foreigners that will become dominant in the Jewish culture. This is a big deal for the Israelites, that, that they would be able to show these things. And so this is what he's testing against. He's saying, I want to find a person who will value the things that God values. Okay, he's not trying to, he's not saying, you know, if I throw a noodle at her face and it sticks on her face, then let her be the one that I chose. He's not saying, if I walk into a bar and the bartender offers me a drink, then I should be drinking tonight. Like that's, that's crazy kind of decision making. What he's saying is, let her reflect the values that I know you already have, that I know that you value for us. And if that's the case, let her be the one. That will be an indication to me that this is the one that you have chosen. And so he gives that plan to him. It's a value-based decision. And he's making it to reflect God's values above and beyond his own values, right? So he could say, oh, dude, Isaac, I found this super hot lady, whatever. I don't know what the, whatever his values are for it, right? And bring her back and be like, I'm sure this thing's going to be great. But he wants to know above and beyond anything else that this woman values, has a heart after God's own heart. And so that's the third way. We invite God into our decisions by making decisions that reflect his values above and beyond our own. Sometimes the worst thing that we can do is settle for a good decision. We can stay anchored to good decisions for years and years because they're comfortable or they're safe or they reflect those other values that become so important to us. And they keep us from growing. They keep us from going where God wants us to go because we're not willing to make a godly decision. 
but we've settled for a good decision instead. I remember Mark Clark was talking in a sermon I recently listened to about churches in the suburbs. This is going to be a thing. Hey, I'm going to play with my glasses now when I'm up here. Sorry, everyone. He was talking about churches in the suburbs and the difficulty it is in getting these churches to grow because of the culture, of the comfort, of the unwillingness to break out of that comfort that's represented in the suburbs. Some of the most difficult things of all their church plants, they they were talking about that. I mean, he might have been quoting somebody else. But the the problem is this, right, that comfort and safety and normalcy and these expectations of of provision or whatever it is become our guiding value. And they lead us into good decisions that you can make, and everybody around you will say, that was a good decision. That was a great decision. I'm sure that was real smart. But it's not still yet a godly decision. I had a, well, we should say that God values a better life for us than we value for ourselves often enough. Isn't that true? I had a buddy, he was he was addicted to the world of Warcraft. It was like his life. He played so much of that game. And we've been there. I mean, I can laugh at him. But I've, I've been, like, spending too much time on video games at different points in my life. Or if we want to judge the video game guy, right, like, let's just look at how much Netflix. I learned that Canadians, on average, between 18 and 24 years old, spend 16.5, I think, hours a week. Uh, watching TV, like consuming TV, is like a couple hours a day, right? And so this is all just impacting us. It's all it's all influencing the way that we think about things. And if you think those 18 to 24-year-old millennials or whatever have got it bad, the, the 55-plus folks spent, I think it was uh, 36 hours a week on average watching television. That's a lot. That's almost 40 hours. That's almost two full days a week spent watching TV. That's a, that's a whole lot, right? So my buddy, he's, he's playing World of Warcraft, and he's logging all these hours away. And then he's, his values are, I want to have fun, I want to be distracted, I want to level up, or whatever it is, or get this gun, or whatever it, whatever it is, right? I don't know how Warcraft works. But that was his value. And then he saw that. He had this sort of gracious perspective on his life. Where he went, Man, I'm spending a lot of time doing this. What would happen if I put this time into something that was just a little bit more fulfilling? I've always wanted to learn the ukulele. What if I spent the amount of time that that I play World of Warcraft and I, I dedicated that to learning the ukulele? One month later, less than a month later, the dude's shredding on the ukulele. If you can shred on the world's happiest instrument, I don't know if you can. But he was. Like, he, he learned that because he just went, you know what, I'm going to have a different value for this time. Now, what would happen? And, and again, we're all here because I'm pretty sure most of us according to the stats, are watching a lot of TV, right? So what would happen if we just said, this thing that I value, and, and the thing that I value it for, what if we invited God into that? We see in the story today that as Abraham's servant invited God into his decision-making, God quickly answered him. God, God came swiftly. In Genesis 24, 15, it says, before he had finished praying, okay, so this is immediately, before he had finished with praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin no man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hand and gave him a drink. 
after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water from your camels too until they have had enough to drink. And so she quickly emptied her jar one million times into the trough, ran back to the well and drew more water and drew enough for all of his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. That's an important part there too, hey? Like he's got his plan, he's got his strategy, but he's asked God to bring the success. And so he's not saying this is a guarantee. He is still looking for these things that God values. It says the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. And when the camels had finished drinking, seven hours later, the man took out a gold nose ring. That's not offensive, everybody. That was a cool thing to do. The man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels, which is a lot of value, like we talked about last week. And then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And then the rest, as they say, is kind of happily ever after. So this goes on for the rest of the 60-something-odd verses. And Rebecca is, of course, the person whom Isaac eventually is married to. And this is just an interesting little tidbit. If you flip to the very end of that verse, because I was thinking, I want to talk a little bit about arranged marriages or whatever. This is just a customary thing. They're doing arranged marriages. I think we see at the very end of this verse the reason that Isaac doesn't go and try and find a wife for himself. It says, And so Rebekah became his wife, and he loved her, Isaac loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. <laughs> He's like, all right, I'm going to go, hey, can you can you come be my wife? My mom died. I just, like, could you, would that be, would that be okay? I don't think that would have gone well for him. So I, I'm pretty sure it's a good thing that, uh, that this happened the way that it did. But for us, godly decision-making isn't something that's locked away in times past. In fact, it's easier than ever now to make godly decisions. God declared to Isaiah in chapter 30, verses 19 to 21, he says, People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And again, Jesus declares this to be fulfilled in John chapter 16, 13, when he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. This is our hope. We have a God who wants and yearns to and longs to guide us and bring us into the way of wisdom we currently have the opportunity to have the spirit of the living God dwelling inside of us, guiding us into all truth, waiting on an invitation, waiting for God to be invited into our decision-making. In James 1.5, James encourages the church saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. This is the promise that we have before us if we might just invite God into our decisions. Imagine how our lives and our decisions might be shaped to the better as we give those over to the Lord. If we invited him, who is himself wisdom, who knows the future. Like, if you're buying stock in BlackBerry, you wish you knew the future, <laughs> don't you? When you're making big decisions, when you're making small decisions, you wish you knew the future. God knows the future. And he's like, I can help you. Like, what kind of craziness is it to say, nah, don't need it. 
I got this, God, Blackberry's going to be solid. Don't worry about it. This is our opportunity. We get to invite this God, the God of all wisdom, who knows the future, who generously longs to give this wisdom to us into our decisions. Imagine building our lives upon a legacy of decisions which reflected his values. Imagine what your life would look like if every decision was taken capture, if, if every decision had God inside of it, if it breathed of his, his knowledge and his wisdom and his heart for you. Imagine handing that legacy down to your children and to your children's children. I want to encourage you to start small. So this week, um, you know, my wife and I, we face this decision regularly. What should we do with the time of our evening after the kids go to bed, right? Every single day we go, oh, what do you want to do? And we go, I don't know. We get a small decision that we get to make. And it doesn't have to be a great big decision. It doesn't have to be a, a house purchase or, or, or who you're getting married to or something like this. God desires to transform us through these small decisions as well. I would encourage you this week to invite God into that daily mundane decision. What am I going to do with my time tonight? God, how might I reflect things that you value with the way that I spend my evening. Try it for a week and see what happens. It doesn't have to be a long commitment. Try it for one night if you can't do it for a week. Try it. Just try it and see how God longs to shape you. See if you look back and go, that was a great life. I shouldn't have done that. I don't think that you will. Invite him to define for you what a successful evening looks like. That's your homework for, for this week. Jeremiah 29.11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future, and then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so generous, so gracious to us, so loving, and so good. We ask, God, that you would strengthen us this week as we invite you into our decision-making, as we pursue the things that you value with the way that we live our lives, the way that we spend our time, our money, the way that we invest our resources. God, we ask that you would be a part of these things and that you would be glorified through all of it that you would help us to make these godly decisions. We ask in your son's name. Amen.